Radioactive nuclear waste is the ultimate NIMBY, not in my backyard. So when the nuclear industry tells us they're planning to ship all that waste somewhere else, far, far away, they're ignoring the fact that with nuclear, there is no such thing as away. And they're not listening to us, but you are. And that's when you hear that shipping nuclear waste may not be such a good idea because... Because every single community you haul this high-level radioactive waste through is going to face those gamma doses coming off the transports inevitably, but also face the risk of severe accidents or even intentional attack. Yikes. When you hear information like that, and so much more, you know that you are in the seat we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a Nuclear Hot Seat special. An extended interview on radioactive waste storage issues with Kevin Camps, nuclear waste watchdog for Beyond Nuclear. Kevin's tenacity, knowledge, and ability to share his understanding of complex nuclear issues means there's nobody better to explain what we're up against and what we can do about it. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report, on the latest problems with our crumbling U.S. nuclear reactors, plus news, attitude, and more honest nuclear information than could fit on the head of the pinhead who withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement last week. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 6, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The latest from the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in southeastern Washington state is that the partially collapsed, they're calling it partially collapsed now, love that languaging, waste storage tunnel is going to be filled with grout to further stabilize it. This according to the Department of Energy. As we cannot quickly determine the exact cause of the partial collapse of the tunnel, the rest of the tunnel is still subject to collapse. Great news, said Doug Shoup, manager of the DOE Hanford Richland Operations Office. Grout. This is what I use on my bathtub, and they're using it to try and remediate a nuclear situation. Kevin Camp speaks to this exact issue in today's interview. Science Magazine has published an article by researchers at Princeton University and the Union of Concerned Scientists warning that an irradiated nuclear fuel pool fire at nuclear power stations would be far more damaging than the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission analysis currently claims. This being in Science Magazine is a big deal. 
The researcher's analysis finds that a nuclear waste fire in the so-called spent fuel pool could radioactively contaminate an area twice the size of New Jersey, causing an average of 8 million people to indefinitely relocate and cause as much as $2 trillion in damages. The researchers further find that the NRC analysis has played down the consequences because it has been, quote, pressured by the nuclear industry directly and through Congress to lowball the potential consequences of a fire, end quote, to shield the nuclear industry from cost and liability. We'll have more about this on today's special interview. Speaking of problems at nuclear reactors, it's the duck (laughs) and cover report for what's gone wrong at those aging rust buckets. Based on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission reports, there were two incidents at Clinton in Illinois, including an automatic reactor scram and an event or condition that could have prevented fulfillment of a safety function needed to control the release of radioactive material. Additional problems reported at Farley in Alabama, South Texas in Texas, obviously, Brunswick, North Carolina, Monticello or Monticello in Minnesota. (laughs) In Japan, the trial of the three key TEPCO executives in charge during the Fukushima disaster began this week. They are charged with criminal negligence for not taking known safety measures to protect the plant against a large tsunami. There are so many other things that they could be charged with, but at least the trial is finally taking place long after prosecutors in Tokyo refused to prosecute the case. And this is because a citizen group using legal maneuvers forced it to trial. The three key TEPCO executives are the ex-chairman and two ex-vice presidents. In Czech Republic, an agency says about half of all wild boars in the country's southwest are radioactive and considered unsafe for consumption due to the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Similar problems with radioactive wild animals were reported in Austria and Germany. Now, Fukushima has become home to hundreds of wild boars, which have been known to attack people when enraged, descending from surrounding hills and forests into the deserted streets. Wild boar meat is a delicacy in northern Japan, but animals slaughtered since the Fukushima disaster began in 2011 are too contaminated to eat. According to tests conducted by the Japanese government, some of the boars have shown levels of radioactive element cesium-137 that are 300 times higher than the quote-unquote safety standards, which are too high to begin with. And Japan is now forcing people to return to that environment. In Scotland, for the second time, an American military plane carrying a deadly cargo of radioactive waste has taken off from Wick John O'Groats Airport. The goal is to clear a backlog of nuclear waste stored at the Dunray Power Station. Critics have blasted the high-security flights as unsafe and morally reprehensible. In the United States, you cannot overfly with this type of material. It's illegal. Instead, we ship it by rail or road through unsuspecting communities. And if that's not crazy enough for you... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that sound awake. Oh, Canada. 
a new report from Ontario Power Generation overwhelmingly affirms the utility's long-held position that the best place for a nuclear waste bunker, they're calling it a bunker, not a dump, is on the Lake Huron shoreline, close to the Bruce Power Nuclear Generating Station. Gee, how convenient for you guys. Of course, it's only 1.2 kilometers, or for those of us here in the United States, three quarters of a mile away from Lake Huron, which is one of five Great Lakes, which all have different basins, but it's the same body of water. So you're talking about all the fresh water in this great repository in North America. According to Bruce Power, the only minor advantage amid a sea of disadvantages, to locating a bunker. Why are they calling it a bunker? Oh, that's right. Languaging, wording. It's the nuclear industry. Some turd got paid a bundle to relanguage that one. But let's call it what it is. The only minor advantage they see to locating a bunker elsewhere might be less disturbance of indigenous heritage sites such as burial grounds. Even so, according to this story, the overall impact on Aboriginal peoples, both letters capitalized, is likely to be lower if the deep geologic repository is built, as proposed, at the Bruce Nuclear Plant. Well, how white of you. No mention of the over 200 groups and communities in both Canada and the United States that have decried this boneheaded piece of nuclear thinking. Prime Minister Trudeau... Don't do it. And all you soul-selling shills who think you can put this over, don't think you can pee on our backs and tell us it's rain. And that's why you, Ontario Power Generation, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. So much of the news we cover on Nuclear Hot Seed deals with the never-ending problems caused by radioactive nuclear waste going all the way back to World War II and the Manhattan Project. Hanford, the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, North St. Louis, San Onofre, Apollo, Pennsylvania, Niagara Falls, uranium mine tailings on tribal lands and in the Grand Canyon watershed, the list is, alas, endless. And that's just mentioning the problems here in the U.S. I've heard the problems of radioactive nuclear waste from nuclear reactors described as being akin to we, the public, being sold a beautiful, modern, highly engineered condominium, one with all the fanciest latest accoutrements, granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, parquet floors, great views, but no toilets. Yeah, the place looks good, but what are you supposed to do with the waste? Where do you put it? And how do you keep it safe until it's no longer a threat? Which, because it's radioactive, means it will always be a threat, meaning that you always have to take care of it, as in forever. That's the problem with nuclear. That's their glowing elephant in the living room that nobody in the industry wants to talk about. And that's why today we're featuring an extended interview with Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. Kevin is that group's nuclear waste watchdog. I prefer to think of him as a bulldog. And he has a unique perspective based on looking at it all for decades. 
knowing the history, and finding the commonalities in the threats we face from radioactive nuclear waste. Fasten your seatbelts for a lot of information, along with a vision of what the nuclear industry has so graciously gifted us for all of our futures, along with some thoughts as to what we can do about it. Note that Skype was getting a little Skypish during this interview, but in the few places where the sound goes wonky, I tried to put it back together, and I'm sure you'll be able to follow the thoughts. Kevin Camps, always a pleasure to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. There's so much to talk about in terms of waste storage, it's almost impossible to choose, but let's start with what's been in the news lately, which is Hanford, which in May had two separate accidents within 10 days, both dealing with radioactive waste. First of all, considering this is the size of approximately half of Rhode Island and is one of the most contaminated places on Earth, how in the world was this allowed to happen? Yeah, it is pretty remarkable. The Department of Energy spends some $2 billion per year of federal taxpayer money on cleanup and environmental management at the Hanford Nuclear Weapons Complex in Washington State. And despite that, a tunnel collapsed with radioactive waste inside. And uh, it's really symbolic of the entire radioactive waste management fiasco going on across the country Uh, There had been warnings. There had been warnings from within the Department of Energy. Uh, There had been warnings from environmental watchdog groups that these tunnels specifically needed to be tended to. And the Department of Energy and its contractors in their wisdom, I say that sarcastically, ignored those warnings. And uh, like you said, there was a second piece of bad news recently from Hanford. Uh, Yet another leak, it would appear, from a storage tank for liquid high-level radioactive waste that joins a long, growing list of such leaks, and that's really the big shoe to drop at Hanford. Uh, The Columbia River, which is upstream of Portland, Oregon, is very near to these liquid high-level radioactive waste storage tanks. We're talking over 50 million gallons of this material, and it's not good when those suffer even small leaks, and uh, the the real danger is that they're going to suffer a big leak and not be able to stop that radioactive contamination from reaching the Columbia River. What has been done at Hanford so far to, quote-unquote, remediate the tunnel collapse, I think is indicative of short-term and, to my perspective, very flawed thinking. Because thus far, with a tunnel that was made of creosote-soaked railroad ties back in the 1950s, it has been covered with 53 trucks of dirt, Then it was covered with a plastic tarp held down by concrete blocks. And now apparently they're talking about, or they've actually started, dumping grout on it. How successful would any of these be, in your opinion, to remediate any radiation that might be coming out from the site? Dr. Arjun Makajani of Institute for Energy and Environmental Research very quickly questioned the approach being taken to cover that tunnel breach. So the dumping of all that dirt, for one thing, means that it's going to be very difficult to access that site in the future. And there is radioactive waste in there. I even saw some documentation, the documents were decades old, that there could have been bare irradiated nuclear fuel in that tunnel, which is really bad. That is high-level radioactive waste, and it would explain some of the dose rates on the documents, which were in the tens of rem at a distance of hundreds of feet away. So 
you know, they've got to get that stuff out of there. That can't just be left in in situ burial forever because over time it's going to leak into the soil, into the groundwater, into the Columbia River. So how much sense did it make to dump all that dirt onto this scene? And now, you know, talk of grout on top of that. The Department of Energy, you know, there are laws in this country. Uh, last I checked, things like the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires that federal agencies, before they take an action that could have a major environmental impact, at least think about it, at least take what's called a hard look under the law. And they can still do the wrong thing after their hard look. That part of the law never made sense to me, really. But once they take the hard look, uh, they're good to go. Well, DOE just did this emergency, let's dump some dirt on this scene without any pretense of an environmental assessment environmental impact statement they're going to claim it was an emergency while out the other side of their mouth were saying oh there's no problem here while out the third side of their mouth had ordered their workers to take shelter across what you described as something as big as half of rhode island thousands of workers ordered to take shelter in place because it was a site-wide emergency so the take-home lesson is that the department of energy is out of control and the people of this country had better assert some control before the worst happens. One of the initial claims that was made when the accident happened, the tunnel collapse, and this showed up in the media less than one hour after it was discovered, is that there was no radiation from the site. Yet what we have learned is that it was workers doing a general check on the site before going in to do some work who discovered the radiation from some distance away. They referred to it as the shine of radiation. Does this mean that radiation was being released from the site? Certainly gamma radiation, which is like x-rays, could have emanated from that hole in the tunnel out into the air, into the atmosphere, into the general area. So it would be detectable with radiation monitors. It would be a hazard to any humans who came close enough. It will dissipate quickly with distance, which is a good thing. There is the possibility that any loose physical material in that tunnel, radioactive dust, could be swept out by wind. And that was a very fortuitous thing during this uh, emergency, that it was fairly still and there wasn't a storm going on out there. The closer you are to such a situation physically without radiation shielding, the higher your exposure to the gamma radiation. And it would be almost impossible for gamma radiation not to have escaped that hole. So, again, the Department of Energy's downplaying of the risks is kind of absurd on a certain level. I don't know if you're aware of it, but gamma-5 radiation spikes were recorded at both Richland starting the night before, which is 23 miles away from the tunnel site, and also in one of the following days, it was recorded at Corvallis in Oregon, which is actually 300 miles away from the site. And thus far, nobody's been able to pin down what that was related to, though it is suspicious that radiation showed up the night before the tunnel collapse was discovered, only 23 miles away. There is some question about when the tunnel collapsed versus when it was discovered. The workers did discover it, whether it was with radiation monitors, I hadn't heard that, or visually, but the question is how long before they discovered it had the tunnel actually collapsed. And Another thing about picking up gamma radiation increases downwind, perhaps. If there were any radioactive dust or particles that escaped that tunnel because of a breeze or a wind and then blowed downwind, then that could be a sensible hypothesis, but it would take more investigation.
Moving to the leak or the radiation that was found between the walls of the double-sided tank, this happened only 10 days after the tunnel collapse, the Hanford site has been putting out that there are 800,000 gallons of toxic sludge in those tanks, and they've said something about planning to remove the waste. How in the world could they remove that much waste safely, and where would they remove it to? Well, they're going to have to build brand new tanks, these giant, really million-gallon tanks that are underground. The double-shelled tanks are the newest models out there. They need to build state-of-the-art double-shelled tanks for these leaking tanks. And some of the leaking tanks at Hanford are single-shelled tanks, and they date back, some of them, as far as the 1940s to the very dawn of the Manhattan Project, the generation of plutonium for the Nagasaki bomb in Japan. And so when those single-shelled tanks leak, it's directly into the soil, which then flows into groundwater, and then eventually the Columbia River. So the highest priority at Hanford, and taking their sweet time getting around to it, is to empty these leaking tanks into brand-new, state-of-the-art, double-shelled tanks before the worst happens. They also talk at Hanford about turning the waste into immobilized glass logs through a vitrification plant. Is that in operation, and if so, how effective is it? No, it's one of the biggest boondoggles in American history that many billions of dollars have already been spent on the vitrification plant, and it still doesn't work, and it's nowhere close to working. And that's why the transfer of the high-level liquid wastes from the leaking tanks into new tanks has to be the, the highest priority. We can't wait for the vitrification plant to be done. It's going to be many years or longer into the future. And a part of the reason for all these mistakes made at the vitrification plant is that the contractors, companies like Bechtel Nuclear, have been paid big bonuses to meet milestone goals in terms of scheduling, and they've far outpaced the design of the plant. And so guess what? When uh, it comes time to connect two pipes or two systems, they don't connect because the construction far outpaced the design. It's, it's really incredible, but Bechtel's been laughing all the way to the bank, and uh, the risks just continue to mount at Hanford. Speaking of the bank, it's about to get a lot smaller because in Trump's proposed budget for 2018, he takes $120 million out of the Hanford budget. What kind of impact is that likely to have on any attempts to clean up the site? I think Hanford and all of the other nuclear weapons complex sites in the country, places like Idaho National Lab and Savannah River Site in South Carolina and many others need every dollar that they can get for these environmental management and cleanup priorities, uh, emergencies really. And so trying to balance budgets or decrease deficits or whatever he's up to fund the Pentagon, I guess, by taking away these cleanup funds are... Um, objectionable and have to be fought. And I think during Energy Secretary Rick Perry's confirmation, both at committee and also on the Senate floor earlier this year, some senior Democrats like Senator Wyden of Oregon and Maria Cantwell of Washington, who's the ranking Democrat on energy and natural resources, voted against Perry because they weren't satisfied with his answers about things like Hanford cleanup, which they both care about because their constituents are downstream on the Columbia. So uh, 
I think there's going to be some uh, open warfare, so to speak, between Democrats like Cantwell and Wyden and the Trump administration on such budget cuts. Let's shift this over to San Onofre, which is, of course, on the Southern California coast. And it's where Southern California Edison, with Nuclear Regulatory Commission approval, was planning on storing the highly radioactive spent fuel rods in the cheapest possible dry casks within 100 feet of the Pacific Ocean. This has engendered a huge pushback from activists, and they've been aided by a particularly damning Google Earth picture, which showed people exactly how close these storage tanks were to high tide. And without both of those factors, SCE, Southern California Edison, would have gotten away with this. Now they're saying that they plan to move this high-level radioactive waste to New Mexico without being specific. How feasible is it that there's any place in New Mexico at this time to ship that kind of waste? Well, probably what they're talking about in terms of New Mexico is called the Eddie Lee, which are two counties, Eddie County and Lee County, the Eddie Lee Energy Alliance, which is very close to the waste isolation pilot plant. It is a project really led by Holtec International, which is the company providing those containers at San Onofre and many other nuclear reactors across the country. And it's uh, very close to another similar proposal. These are centralized interim storage facilities. The other one is just 35, 40 miles to the east at Waste Control Specialists Limited Liability Corporation in Andrews, Texas. So between the two, ALEA, Eddie Lee Energy Alliance, would be for 120,000 metric tons of commercial irradiated nuclear fuel and waste control specialists would be 40,000 metric tons. That's 160,000 altogether. That is twice as much as currently exists in this country. So if those both were to go into operation, that would be to cover all the waste that would be ever generated, even with 60-year licenses, maybe even with 80-year licenses, at all 100 still operating reactors in this country. How safe are those sites purported to be? And... How close are they to being able to actually accept waste? Or do they exist at all at this point other than as legal fictions? That's a good way to put it. The Holtec site in New Mexico is a legal fiction in a sense at this point, although they have applied for a license to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to construct and operate, and the NRC is an infamous rubber stamp agency. And so Holtec, which is forever confident in its uh, powers, hopes to really have a license in hand around 2020 and to begin storing waste there shortly thereafter. There is a growing coalition of environmental groups, environmental justice groups, that will seek to intervene and to block that license. And we've had some success in blocking the license at Waste Control Specialists. The company in Texas is under extreme financial challenges, I think was their wording, they are hoping to get bailed out by a competitor from Utah called Energy Solutions, and they think that'll make their problems go away and they'll be back on track. So we are looking at two licensing proceedings for these really two sister projects within 35 miles of each other that would turn this neck of the woods on the Texas-New Mexico border into a nuclear sacrifice area. There are scientific unsuitability issues like, for example, the presence of the Oglala Aquifer very near to the Texas site downstream, and huge environmental justice issues. This is a, a largely Latin American area. There's a significant poverty rate, 
and it's already heavily polluted by fossil fuel industries like oil extraction and natural gas fracking, as well as nuclear activities like uranium enrichment and so-called low-level radioactive waste dumping, although there's some pretty highly radioactive categories in that, both at waste control specialists already. It is a national dump for all categories of low-level waste. And also at the WIP site in New Mexico, which is the military's plutonium disposal site that experienced an impossible leak in uh, 2014. That brings us to WIP, which is located in Carlsbad, New Mexico. It was supposed to safely contain radioactive waste in the underground salt banks, salt mines, for 10,000 years and only made it to 15 years before the accident happened on Valentine's Day 2014, which was the explosion of an underground 55-gallon drum from Los Alamos National Laboratories, which contaminated the underground. We've covered it many times here on Nuclear Hot Seat. WIP, as it's called, made a big hoopla over reopening last December but there are permanent limitations on how the site can be used compared with the way it was before. What are some of those differences, and what are the ongoing problems at the WIP site? WIP claims to have reopened, even under the Obama administration in the last days uh, earlier this year, I think just to save face. I mean, it had been shut down for nearly three years at that point, and so Energy Secretary Moniz and even President Obama wanted to put that to bed and say we're back in operation here. But like you said, there are major constraints now. My understanding is that there are whole sections of the underground that are no longer usable. They're going to have to be sealed off, only partially filled, which is a huge inefficiency, a huge cost escalation because they're going to have to cram more waste in a smaller space with what's still accessible. Also, workers going down underground used to be able to go down just in normal clothing for the most part, was my understanding. Maybe they would wear plastic suits, but they wouldn't wear respiratory protection for sure. Well, that's all over now. My understanding is that going into the underground because of the severe plutonium and other transuranic contamination resulting from that barrel burst, you have to have full respiratory protection, which you know slows things down. You better get it right because there's real dangers down there. So, yeah, I think everything is slowed down. They do have a flow of waste back in. And one of those flows I haven't had time to document yet is my hope is that one of the top priorities for WIP and for Los Alamos and for waste control specialists is to get these potentially exploding barrels out of the waste control specialist site in Texas where they were rushed to by Los Alamos in the immediate aftermath of the 2014 accident just to keep Los Alamos on schedule. And what ended up happening was hundreds of these drums were put in an open-air trench in the West Texas desert. They were actually put inside uh, concrete overpacks painted black. I mean, you couldn't do worse if you tried, because then they baked under the summer sun in 2014, and the whole issue is heat. That is the trigger. That is the ignition for the chemical reaction and the burst. So Los Alamos had to intervene at Waste Control Specialists and explain to them the dangers that were being taken and at least get them to cover these concrete overpacks with a thin layer of dirt to try to insulate against the solar heat. And if they have not shipped those out of West Texas yet, and I don't know that they have, they are continuing to take very high risks in the open air in West Texas. 
Can the WIP site receive spent fuel rods from nuclear reactors? Is that within its purview for whatever limited acceptance of materials it can do at this time? No, absolutely not. Although proponents at WIP, uh, it should be said, the Department of Energy, but also its boosters in the local community who are blinded by dollar signs, have wanted to be at least a parking lot dump at the surface for commercial irradiated nuclear fuel, or DOE, spent fuel for that matter. They've never gotten away with it. They keep trying. Uh, really, this uh, Holtec International slash ALIA proposal is the latest version of that, where they want to be a parking lot dump for commercial irradiated nuclear fuel not very far away from the WIP site. And, you know, inertia, momentum, they would not mind if that material, that high-level radioactive waste and rod form, were to go underground out there. There are vast stretches of salt geology, so um, they could just expand horizontally into the landscape, and they would love to do it. They would love to be paid billions or more dollars to do so, and watchdog groups in New Mexico and nationwide are going to have to remain vigilant to prevent that bad idea. I mean, remember, these are the very same people who said WIP could never leak, and like you said, it took a whole 15 years to do so. That single barrel burst out there, the recovery costs are a remarkable $2 billion, if you read the fine print, for a single barrel bursting in the whip underground. Unbelievable. Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear will have more to say about the proposed Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository, the sudden Trump withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Climate Change Agreement, the dangers of waste shipment through our communities, and much, much more. But first... Here at Nuclear Hot Seat, as I think you can tell, we work hard to unearth nuclear truths and report them in a way that anyone from a nuclear newcomer to a seasoned activist will find accessible, understandable, and informative, and funny if we can get it there. But what you won't get is an echo chamber, you won't get hysteria, other than my numbnuts of the week rant, just information gleaned from around the world along with interviews with genuine experts, unafraid to face the awful nuclear truths and fight back against them. Each week, this show offers news, perspective, context, as much humor as possible, and an incremental history of these nuclear times in which we live. In order to continue to do this show, we need your help. Please, if you appreciate Nuclear Hot Seat, help support us with a donation of any size. You can make it a one-time assist or a monthly recurring donation. We make it easy for you to help us. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. Know that I am really grateful for whatever you can do to help us meet our expenses so we can keep Nuclear Hot Seat alive and kicking the nuclear industry where it so richly deserves to be kicked. Now... Back to the interview with Kevin Camps, nuclear waste watchdog for Beyond Nuclear. The great white elephant hope that is being put forth yet again, talk about beating a dead horse back to life, or at least trying to do so, is Yucca Mountain. 
The current administration is talking about it as a solution to the problem of high-level radioactive waste storage. And we had Ian Zabarte of the Western Shoshone people on the show a few weeks ago talking about this very issue. From your perspective, what are some of the problems with trying to breathe life back into this project? Well, it's great you had Ian Zabarte on. I mean, it's a non-starter because the Western Shoshone Indian Nation has treaty rights, the Peace and Friendship Treaty of 1863, signed by the U.S. government, the Treaty of Ruby Valley. So it's a non-starter. It's Western Shoshone Indian land. Yucca Mountain happens to be sacred to them, and that should be that. Treaties are the highest law of the land, equal in stature to the U.S. Constitution. So when the U.S. goes around accusing Iran of treaty violations, etc., maybe we should get our own house in order. But beyond that, Yucca Mountain is scientifically unsuitable. It's an earthquake zone. There are two fault lines that would actually intercept the disposal site under the crest of Yucca Mountain. There are dozens more earthquake faults in the nearby vicinity. They've had significant earthquakes in the 4 to 5 magnitude, 5.4, that uh, did a million dollars damage to Department of Energy field facilities at Yucca back in the early 1990s. And in addition to all that, there is uh, volcanic activity out there. If you're standing on the Yucca Crest and look westward, you will see several volcanic cones extending to the west. That's evidence of past volcanic activity. If you go to the south of Yucca Mountain, some some 20 miles or so, there's the Ash Meadows uh, National Wildlife Refuge with endangered and unique desert pupfish living in hot springs. And those hot springs are further evidence of magma near the surface out there. And so they're just looking at one of, well, as Dr. Makajani of IER puts it, Yucca is the worst site ever studied for this purpose and should have been abandoned as unsuitable in the early 1980s. The DOE already had plenty of evidence that this site was unsuitable, but for raw political reasons, uh, the site has been targeted. The Screw Nevada Bill of 1987, which singled out Yucca Mountain as the only site to be further studied for the nation's high-level radioactive waste dump, was uh, just fine with the rest of the country. It was 49 states against one. It was 434 members of the House versus one at the time, and, you know, 98 senators versus two. But they, they messed with one of the wrong rookie senators, and that was Harry Reid of Nevada, back in 87, who then devoted the rest of his career to stopping the Yucca Dump, and very successfully, I would add. So it was raw politics. The state of Washington, for example, the state of Texas, were other targeted sites in the West. They had 34 members of the U.S. House in Texas. They had a dozen or more in Washington. Between those two states, they shared the House Majority Leader and the Speaker of the House positions, And it was just uh, brutal, raw politics. And Nevada has fought with everything it has ever since quite successfully, and they stand strong and ready to do so still now. So if members of the House like Upton from Michigan and Shimkus from Illinois want to waste everybody's time and taxpayers' money and ratepayers' money on pursuing this uh, dead end, then they can continue to do so. And they will meet fierce resistance, uh, including along the transport corridors in most states that would be needed to move the waste to this leaky site in Nevada. Right. The transport corridors, which I know have been referred to as mobile Chernobyl and create a hazard of their own. Yep. And, you know, 
the wastes can't stay at places like San free forever, but we would hasten to say hardened on-site storage as close as possible to point of generation as safely as possible. So an option at San Onofre, Camp Pendleton Marine Corps Base, moving it just a few miles inland and to higher ground instead of a thousand miles to the east for no good reason. Because every single community you haul this uh, high-level radioactive waste through is going to face those gamma doses coming off the transports inevitably, but also face the risk of severe accidents or even intentional attacks. So the movement of the waste is a very high risk, has to be done for the best reasons, as little as possible, and we can't rush into it. And that's why we fight these bad proposals so fiercely and have for a generation now. This brings us to what happened yesterday, which is that Trump announced that we are now going to be stepping back from and not being part of the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Besides being devastating news for the planet and the future of life on the planet, how do you see this as impacting the nuclear industry and those of us who oppose it? One of the first thoughts I had, besides this guy is truly insane, was, you know, it seems to be his love affair with coal, most of all, and then maybe fracked natural gas after that, and oil. The guy just seems to be enamored with fossil fuels, and uh, if that's the case, and that continues to be the case, and it seems to be, you know, another industry besides renewables and efficiency that gets short shrift in all that is, incredibly enough, the nuclear power industry. And I know that President Trump loves nuclear power too, but you know, you can't have it all. And there have been calls for a long time now in Congress, even from conservative Republicans like Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, that there be some sort of price put on carbon emissions, put on the combustion of fossil fuels. And that alone, if that were to happen in whatever form, whether it's, you know, uh, a carbon tax or some kind of emissions trading scheme is going to benefit the nuclear power industry because it is relatively low carbon emissions, although there's so many devilish details left out of that full cost accounting from uranium mining all the way through radioactive waste management. But regardless of all that, nuclear power would receive a benefit if there were some sanity applied to the combustion of fossil fuels. But Trump is not going to do that. So one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is, wow, the nuclear power industry is going to be harmed yet again by Trump's action here. And we we were right there with many of our colleagues nationally and worldwide making sure that the nuclear power industry did not get any undue advantages from uh, these climate agreements. Even in Paris, which is nuclear central, the French government you know, was the backer of the nuclear industry in France, and France had the highest percentage of its electricity of any country in the world, some 75 to 80% nuclear And they still didn't get away with it at the Paris Climate Agreement. And a part of it had to do with just the financial freefall of the French nuclear industry. The only reason those companies like Arriva and Electricity de France weren't outright bankrupt is because they had the full backing of the French treasury, the French taxpayer. But the lobbyists there did not succeed in getting uh, undue advantages for nuclear. And now it appears nuclear, along with renewables and efficiency, will take a back seat to fossil fuels under the Trump plan. And the hope is that the rest of the world and even 
U.S. states and major cities and not-so-major cities in the United States will rise to the occasion and show just how irrelevant the federal government is. That's its own can of worms. But, you know, when, when leadership, so-called, gets in the way, then the people need to lead and brush aside the likes of Trump. Which brings me to the ultimate perspective, which is over the last 70 years, we have created radioactive waste that will outlive not only our generations and the future generations we can perceive, but far beyond that. If one considers the half-life of plutonium as being 24,000 years, and it takes 20 half-life cycles for it to go flat. So it's virtually forever. In the future, what can be done? Should we be able to bury this material or handle it? How can we put systems in place that will give the future people of this planet and the future life forms of this planet a fighting chance of surviving the mess that we have already made? Those are great existential philosophical questions. One of the first speakers I ever heard, I first did anti-nuclear weapons activism, but then I quickly shifted to anti-nuclear power activism some 25 years ago. And one of the first speakers I heard, Michael Keegan of Coalition for Nuclear Free Great Lakes in Michigan, put it this way. He said that atomic reactors product, what is the product of atomic reactors? Electricity is the fleeting byproduct. Maybe you'll get 40 or 60 or maybe 80 years of electricity, all very dangerous uh, reactor operations. But the actual product is forever deadly radioactive waste. It's a curse on all future generations. And now that this curse exists, I mean, the only real solution is to not make it in the first place. And reactor shutdowns are such good news on multiple levels. You can't have reactor meltdowns anymore, but you're also not making high-level radioactive waste for which we have no solution anymore. For this curse that exists, though, what are we going to do? And the national consensus among environmental groups from all 50 states is hardened on-site storage as close as possible to point of generation as safely as possible. And granted, there are sites, and one of the top sites where it is not suitable to be is Prairie Island, Minnesota, which is a Native American reservation. If the waste is not suitable there, you know, The reactors were not suitable there. So these environmental injustices, this radioactive racism, has a long history. But the facts on the ground are that in some places, this waste has to move. And that movement needs to be as short a distance as possible. And that is just an interim measure. As you said, we won a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency that we filed in 2002. We won it in 2004. And EPA was forced to come back in 2008 with new regulations for Yucca Mountain that recognized not 10,000 years of hazard and regulatory compliance being needed, but a million years. And that is still uh, shortchanging it because you have isotopes like iodine-129 where the hazard persists for at least 157 million years. So... You know, talk about trying to keep a lid on it. We've got to keep this material out of the living environment for as long as it remains hazardous, which is in the millions of years. Good luck with that. We're going to have to do our best and keep handing it off to future generations in a form that does not doom them to failure. Yucca Mountain would doom them to failure. So would these parking lot dumps in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico, because 
truth be told, once it's there, it's likely not going to leave because it's going to create the situation again where a single member of Congress or at most two will face the rest of Congress. And the rest of Congress will be, we think it's just fine right where it's at. And good luck trying to move it again. So these are the kinds of, uh, you know, not seventh generation philosophy, but like 12,000th or 25,000th generation philosophy we have to worry about with this artificial poison that has made a handful of people filthy rich. That seems to be the whole point. You know, one of the first interviews that I did with someone of national stature for Nuclear Hot Seat when I was getting started was you. And it struck me from that interview that you said that in order to handle the waste long term, it was almost that we would have to have the equivalent of a priesthood of people who would be dedicated as their calling to protect the planet to be the ones that maintained the site. Does that vision or does that concept still have any currency for you? Well, in some sense, we are it. I mean, since nobody else is doing it, we're doing our best to hold feet to fire and have accountability. It's the concept of nuclear guardianship that Joanna Macy worked out a generation ago, and we were very honored to have her attend our Grassroots Radioactive Waste Summit in Chicago last December. Yes, I mean, unfortunately, but it's got to happen, and, you know, the nuclear industry would like to hold itself out as the nuclear priesthood. They actually used that term back in the day in the 1970s, uh, Oak Ridge, the director, Alvin Weinberg, uh, used that phrase. And the thing is, of course, we can't trust the nuclear industry or the nuclear establishment in government. They have proven themselves incompetent and worse. There is this collusion between industry and government to just keep the dollars flowing despite the high risks. We're seeing that, you know, with tunnel collapses. So the people are going to have to step up. And I should hasten to add that many times it is uh, indigenous peoples who seem to have a lot of wisdom when it comes to earth protection who have stepped up and stopped parking lot dumps targeted at Native American reservations. I think uh, when we stop these dumps in Texas and New Mexico, they're going to go back to Native American reservations yet again, target them yet again. That seems to be the pattern. So, um, we have to work together across cultures, across generations, and try to keep a lid on this thing. There's this phrase called loss of institutional control that comes out of the nuclear industry. It's a recognition that we're not going to be able to keep a lid on it. By definition, human societies fall apart over time, and that's a real sobering thought. That kind of concept has been caught in documentary films like the most recently uh, Containment, is the title. A little further back, you have Into Eternity and others, the journey to the safest place on Earth. There's a recognition that we just have to do our utmost to maintain institutional control. And this idea of just burying it and walking away is sort of sweeping it under the rug. It's kind of the opposite of institutional control. But at the same time, there's a recognition that this stuff can't stay on the surface forever because talk about a dangerous place, the surface of the earth, you know, subject to global weirding, extreme weather, climate chaos now, not to mention warfare, <laughs> intentional targeting, 
or something as simple as rust, where this stuff just leaks out and blows around and falls with the rain and flows with the water. We got to keep on top of all of those risks. As though we don't have enough to worry about from nuclear facilities, there was just an article that came out in Science Magazine recently about pool fires. Tell us what that said and your take on it. Yes, uh, very valuable, very significant article in Science written by Princeton University scientists uh, Frank von Hippel and Michael Schopner, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and uh, Ed Lyman at Union of Concerned Scientists. And it takes another look at the mega risk of irradiated nuclear fuel storage pool fires, which these very same scientists have been warning about for years, even decades now. And what they did is they applied a more state-of-the-art computer model that incorporates real-world data on weather, on meteorology, to a very dated NRC computer program called MAX-2, which looks at radioactivity release in a catastrophe from a nuclear facility. And by applying that meteorological modeling, what Princeton and UCS were able to show is that NRC's previous estimates for the damage, property damage and human casualties caused by a pool fire was off by a factor of three to five. Mm. So where NRC has figures that, you know, which are already shocking enough, we're talking about the Peach Bottom nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania, which has often been used as a, a case study. It's upwind of Philadelphia. It's a very concentrated human population in the area. It's right on the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania, Peach Bottom there. It's a Fukushima design, actually. It's uh, Mark One. So NRC's previous estimates were that some 3.5 million people would be displaced due to a pool fire at Peach Bottom. And around 31,000 square kilometers would be contaminated and made uninhabitable for a long period of time. But... What the new study published in Science shows is that actually the displacement of people would be five times worse. Over 18 million people would be forced to relocate, and the area of land contaminated would be three times worse than NRC calculated, more than 100,000 square kilometers. We're talking twice the size of an area of land of the state of New Jersey. They often put it that way because they're based at Princeton, so they care about New Jersey. The uh, property damages that the new study published in Science estimate is in the range of $2 trillion, with a T, $2 trillion. Those are the risks that we are taking in this country because the nuclear industry wants to save money and not have to spend it on dry cask storage. They keep their pools packed to the gills for as long as they can get away with, simply to defer the costs of dry cask storage as far as possible into the future. Kevin, it's not a pretty picture, and you are one of the few people who not only is aware of all of the ramifications, but can articulate it as well as you do. So thank you tremendously for the work that you've been doing for so many years and that you continue to do. And thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for your kind words and for having me. Kevin Camp's Nuclear Waste Watchdog for Beyond Nuclear. You can learn more about the work of Beyond Nuclear at 
beyondnuclear.org. Here's today's final thought. One of the most important parts about being an activist is knowing when to step away from the insanity, at least for a little while. So all things being equal, by the time you listen to this episode, I'm going to be off-grid in nature for a week. No internet, not even a cell signal. It's an opportunity to remember why I produce and host this show every week. It's the planet. Nature. Life without electronics, nuclear, traffic jams, and with a sky filled with stars that you can actually see. I try to do this trip at least once a year. On one such retreat, I can remember thinking that I was suddenly hearing a very loud, rhythmic noise, only to realize that it was my resting heartbeat. When was the last time you and your world were quiet enough to hear that? But while, yes, I am going away, like MacArthur, I shall return. Next week is Nuclear Hot Seat's sixth anniversary show. And as Wednesday, June 14, is the actual anniversary, I believe that's the day I'll be posting. Yeah, I'm just sentimental like that. Also, I'm stretching this trip away to be as long as it possibly can. So whatever madness, nuclear or otherwise, is happening in the world this week, know that it will pass me by without notice, but that's okay. I'll catch up with everything upon my return. After all, the one thing that's certain about nuclear is that no matter how long I'm gone, it will still be here when I get back. Drat. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 6, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from TriCityHerald.com and the ongoing Hanford reporting of Annette Carey, TheRecord.com, BeyondNuclear.org, PennStateHealthNews.org, NLG.org, SundayPost.com, DeUnRenard.wordpress.com, MiningAwareness.wordpress.com, the well-paid but eternally damned nuclear apologists who sold their souls for a paycheck in order to write propaganda for world nuclear news. Also, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray of Nuclear Free Virginia. And a shout-out to all of you wonderful Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers, so many of whom bring stories to my attention, cheer me on, and help support the work of this show. Thanks, guys. A reminder that you can support the show, too, with a donation at NuclearHotSeat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided with my name, the name of the website, and a link. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to getting rid of radioactive nuclear waste, you cannot throw it away because there is no such thing as away. There, you've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. 
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.